You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Today, on the last episode of season one, we finally get to hear from Reverend Britt Bullerjack. After about the third episode, I came into Britt's office and said, we need to hear from you. And she finally let me interview her. Britt is the college and community pastor at Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for tuning in. Podcast. I'm Jason Smith, and I'm here with my very special guest, Britt Bullerjack from OKC First. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> hey, Britt, I'm excited to interview you today. Um, I wanted to know a little bit more about you, and so the listeners know a little bit more about the host of this Nazarene Life. Let's get started. Go for it. Okay, so the first question I usually ask all of my guests is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I ended up in the Church of the Nazarene from the beginning. My grandparents on both sides were um, part of the Church of the Nazarene. My dad's grandparents were missionaries to Cape Verde for the Church of the Nazarene for upwards of 45 years. Um, And then on the other side, my mom's side, my grandparents were um, very active in the Church of the Nazarene, part of Work and Witness, and my grandfather especially was a contractor and did a lot of construction for projects around the world. And so from there, I've just kind of always been a part of the Church of the Nazarene. I don't have any other frame of reference, really. Now, what were some of their last names, in case any listeners would be connected to those names? Oh, sure. So, um, so my dad's grandparents are... Hank, which is spelled Hink, H-E-N-C-K. And that's Roy and Gloria. Those were the missionaries. And then my mom's parents were McDonald's, Patty and Wayne McDonald. Cool. I just wanted to see if anybody maybe knew you because through family in ways that they didn't even know. It is a small Nazarene world. Yeah, yeah, sure. So how did you end up feeling called to be a pastor, feeling called to ministry? Um, When I was very young. I think I was seven or eight. I remember being at the kitchen sink with my mom. We're both doing dishes. And I remember looking up at my mom and saying, mom, when I grow up, I want to be a missionary just like my grandma. And so that was kind of the, the first memory that I have of feeling a call to ministry. And then when I was 13, I went to youth camp like you do. And really felt there like I wasn't just called to be a Christian. I was called to go deeper and do more and be um, a part and give my whole life the way that so many of my family members had. Um, I, I got my degree in theology from Southern Nazarene University, kind of feeling that sort of call. But I think I always wrestled. I would I went to SNU thinking, oh, maybe I'll do this, maybe I won't do this. But the truth is, my whole life, I really can't imagine doing anything else. As a child, every time somebody would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, it was literally different every single time. And I remember my mom saying so many times, well, that's news to me. You've never said that before. And I think it was because I couldn't imagine doing anything else that I was really cut out for anything else, built for anything else. And so um, I've kind of always been on this trajectory, I think. So you mentioned SNU. Mm-hmm. How did you decide on where to go to college? And what was your major? How did that come about? 
Yeah, SNU was a pretty simple choice. Um, my mom had been working there for two years when I made the decision to go to college there. I had met a lot of the professors already just from hanging out around campus. You know, you kind of become a part of campus, even though I wasn't a student yet. I took a lot of classes my senior year at SNU. I actually took intro to ministry, which is kind of the first class you take as a ministry major, my senior year of high school because I was in concurrent enrollment and fell in love with the professors and the students around me um, and really felt a part of that group of people and recognized in myself a commonality there with other people training to be pastors. Um, and so it was really natural for me to kind of transition from those um, concurrent enrollment classes to SNU itself. I'm not even sure I really considered any other options, to be honest, if I'm really honest about it. Yeah, no. I think I just kind of fell into it and it was a default setting almost. No, it makes total sense. Now, what happened from SNU? from, you know, positions of ministry and then further education. Mm -hmm. Where does your husband Aaron come into that story? Right. Um, towards the end of my sophomore year, maybe beginning of my junior year, we became really good friends. We were best friends for like two years. And we got married and graduated, and he got his master's at OSU in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So we spent two years in Stillwater, and I was interning with the student center on campus and volunteering at Stillwater First Church the Nazarene and just kind of keeping in, in touch all while getting a coffee background at Starbucks because I'd work at Starbucks during college, kind of continued that in Stillwater and really developed a passion for coffee, um, which I didn't really expect because I have never been a coffee drinker. My missionary grandmother on furlough gave me a cup of her decaf coffee when I was five and I took one sip and I spat it out <laughs> and I didn't try coffee again until I was like 22. So really not expecting to fall in love with coffee the way that I did, which is so strange to say now. But towards the end of our two years in Stillwater, we started feeling like God was moving, stirring us to do something, go somewhere. And I started thinking of all these really great places I'd like to go, right? I want to live in Portland, Oregon. I'd love to live in the UK. You know, all these exciting English-speaking places. And one day, we got an email from Erin's mom. And she said, we just heard these missionaries speak. And they're in Poland working at this coffee shop, working with college students. And it sounds like everything that you guys have been doing for the last few years. And I just really think you should check it out. And Aaron read this email to me out loud in our living room and in our little apartment. And I laughed in his face. I thought it was a joke. I thought he was just reading it to be polite. I thought at the end we were both going to have a good belly laugh and that was going to be it. Like, who goes to Poland? We do not go to Poland. You know, who? this is crazy. What are we even talking about? Um, it's, it just wasn't a thing in my mind that, that you do. Especially I had just never considered something like that. So anyway... Weeks pass, and uh, a few different things happened, um, but one of the biggest ones was I got on the train from Oklahoma City to Dallas to visit my little sister and her family, and sat down on this train next to this woman who had a huge upright bass in the seat with her. 
um, kind of at her feet, but like taking up the whole seat. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to introduce myself to this woman. Otherwise, it's going to be a really long train ride. It's going to be long four hours. So I just said, hey, this is who I am. And she said, hey, my name is Pola and I'm from Poland. (laughs) And I didn't miss a beat because I knew in that moment that I was called to go. This has been maybe five weeks after we got the email. And I didn't miss a beat. I just said, wow, that's interesting because I'm moving to Poland. (laughs) (laughs) And I just knew. I knew in that moment. And what's crazy was she had gone to university at the university in the town that we would be serving and could tell me, you know, she just told me all about the culture there and university culture there and how much college students are really seeking for something. Um, The more she talked about the culture and the people and the college town atmosphere, the more I thought, man, this sounds exactly like me. This is what we should be doing. And so I got home and I didn't say a word to my husband. Two weeks pass and there's a sermon in church that Sunday morning. And it was one of those sermons that you just think, oh my gosh, you know, Lord, you really pulled out all the stops for this one because he wrote this sermon for us. And I remember after the service, we both in complete silence, we walk out to the car and we get in the car, we're sitting in the car and he's staring out the driver's side window or staring out the front windshield and I'm staring out the front windshield. And he just says, So when do we say yes to this thing? And I said, well, I've already decided. I've just been waiting for you. Because I knew I couldn't decide by myself. And so he had several months of college left, you know, eight or nine months of of classes. And so we stayed in Stillwater, raised funds for six months probably. We went to 12 different churches and talked about who we were and why we felt called to, to do what we were doing. And that was the beginning. We left in June of 2010, and we were in Poland for two years, which was just an incredible experience, highs and lows, and learned so much. Um, Learned a lot of Polish, which I was super excited about. Um, Nowhere near fluent, but just that um, excitement of learning another language is really fun for me. And we had always thought we were going to go for two years. So towards the end of that two years in Poland, a family came and visited us from the UK. And it just so happened that they came on a weekend when it was so busy and everything was happening. We didn't really have time to entertain them. Um, We had a gospel night at the coffee shop where the gospel choir came in and gave a concert and I gave I preached the message at the end just for 10 or 15 minutes and the next morning we had kids day and a bunch of other things happening on Saturday and then Sunday morning Aaron was in charge of the service and they came to Sunday night and we said well you know before you fly out let us take you out for coffee and cupcakes And so we sat down with them for a while and they said, you know, we're starting a coffee shop ministry in London and we'd really like your help. Seems like you guys really know what you're doing. And my instinct in that moment was just to say, no, like I didn't want these precious people to get their hopes up. And so my my gut reaction was, no, we can't do that. 
and I felt like we'd been gone for so long from home, and I'd really developed, surprisingly, over these two years, a love for Oklahoma and Oklahoma City, and really missing the people and um, a familiar culture that I was, like, comfortable in. And um, so we said, you know, let us think about it. Give us a few weeks to really think and really pray. And I remember on Skype a a week or two later telling my mom, well, you know, we went to coffee with these great people from London, and they talked to us about coming there to their coffee shop ministry. And my mom says, "Uh, but you told them no, right? (laughs) And I said, well, we told them we would think about it. And over the course of several weeks, I mean, it must have been six or eight weeks that we really spent thinking and praying and wrestling, got to the end and just really felt like, yep, this was it. This is what we were supposed to do. So we had six months off between the two projects, or maybe four or five, actually don't remember at the time, but um, spent time fundraising because it's these are, of course, they're all volunteer positions. Um, so spent time fundraising, finally went in January And we actually ended up working with a few different projects, but it was great. It was really incredible experience, and I'm so grateful for the time that I spent there. While we were in between those two projects on that um, five months off, we came back to Oklahoma City first, and we are part of the church family here, and gosh, I just love it so much. And we had, at the time, this monthly service called Overflow, and it was just worship. It was, it was an hour long worship set. You know, it was just raw and there was not a sermon. There were some prayers here and there and, um, just beautiful, beautiful times. And of course, Brandon, um, Whiteside, the worship pastor did such a great job. And I really had this epiphany during the second or third to last one that we went to And I just had a vision of myself teaching um, theology classes about service and about practical things. In my mind, it was, in my mind, it was a class based on Matthew 25. And we would find ways to live out each of those six verbs as a class and reflect on them. Um, And I saw, I I saw a snapshot of all of this and I knew what it was. Um, Somehow in that split second, vision, uh, I had really detailed account. I could, I could tell you about the class and what it would have been like and what we were studying. And so I, I stopped in the middle of the worship service. I think Aaron thought something was wrong, but I just kind of collapsed into the pew, overwhelmed with what I had just seen. And I pulled out my notebook, which I always keep with me. And I just wrote down everything I could remember about it. And, and I wanted to remember, you know, as many details as possible of this like snapshot that I had just witnessed. And so I, I went home from that night and I said, but God, you know, NTS is in Kansas City and you've asked me to move to England. I don't understand how these two calls are going to be compatible. I don't want to go to school online. I need interaction and collaboration. How is this going to work? And I didn't actually know about NTC, embarrassingly enough, um, Nazarene Theological College in Manchester. I, I, I just wasn't aware. And where we ended up moving in England was about 45 minutes away from the college. And it was just incredible how it worked out. Awesome. So I was able to get my degree in the time that we were 
there and it was an incredible experience. I'm so grateful for all the professors there who poured their lives into us, um, the students who were there at the time. And it was just amazing to kind of see how that all worked out. What did you get your degree in at NTC? Um, it's just a it's just an MA in theology um, with an emphasis in um, missions because it was the most practical degree that they offered. Sure. As much as I love education and theology, somehow when I when I get involved in education, I'm always looking for the most practical application type um, curriculum that is available. So I'm I'm always in headed in that direction, which for them is is missions. Um, but I did want to say something about Mission Corps. So. Before all of this, before these four years of being in Europe, I had no idea what Mission Corps was. It used to be Nazarenes and Volunteer Service, right? Um, And I was not aware of how it worked. Um, And it it was kind of an education for us as we went along in the process to kind of know what was going on. But it's really an incredible program, especially for people who have just graduated university, uh, maybe you don't know what you're doing next, but how it works is missionaries, Nazarene missionaries from around the world, dream about what could we do with just one or two more people? What could we accomplish? What part of our vision would be realized if we had a few more hands to do the work? Mm-hmm. And they pencil, they kind of write down these thoughts, and they're posted on Mission Corps' website. And you can go there. I I believe it's just missioncore.org. We can put it in the show notes. But there's a list there of what was at the time 79 different places in the world that you could go and what kind of help that they need. Some places it's a youth pastor. Some places it's a nurse. I remember when we went to Poland, somebody in Alaska was looking for a handyman. So it could be almost anything that you are capable of doing. God could use you abroad. And all sorts of people join Mission Corps of all ages. Um, the, the huge caveat being that you have to raise your own funds. But it has been our experience that when God calls you, God will provide. So I really encourage people to kind of check out Mission Corps and think about how their gifts and talents and passions might fit into the worldwide vision of the Church of the Nazarene. Even for just one year or two years, you can offer up who you are and learn some things, right? And and come back changed and fresh and excited. So cool. I'm on the website right now. Uh There's so many opportunities all over in some really incredible places. Yeah. From less than three months to two plus years. Yeah. And I, I I think people just don't know that it exists. I, I, what I really enjoy about Mission Corps is when you apply, you take a personality test and a conflict management test and a sh- kind of a strength finder kind of things. And they really try to f- give you the place that would be the best fit for you um, in terms of length of time and who you are and who are the missionaries on the ground and how it's all going to work out. Um, and it's just really cool. It's It's so organic because it's not like we organize this team to go to this place. It's more like I personally feel a call and I want to contribute. What can I do? Well, here's all these incredible opportunities. And you can just sign up and tell churches what you're doing and um, God will send you the way that you should go. So cool. Yeah. So you spend about four years in Europe with Mm -hmm. Mm Erin. And then so you're going to be traveling back to the States. 
Tell us about like how that transitioned and you and Aaron and, 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 and where you come back and what you end up doing here. Oh, for sure. So we had always known that when we came back, we were going to come back to OKC First, to our, our church home. I have been going to OKC First since 2001, um, except the years that we've, we were away. Um, and I'm, I can't exactly remember how it all happened, but we got in touch with um, John Mindorf here at the church who said, you know, I might have an opening for a college pastor and um, it's not full time, but you could work some office hours and kind of make it all, we can make it work. We'll figure it out. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, And Aaron really has a heart for college students as well. So we kind of co-pastored and really fell into some amazing rhythms there. And it has been this last two and a half years since we've been back that I've really found my voice and myself in a new way that I wasn't expecting. So I do a lot of work with college students. I'm the women's basketball chaplain at Southern Nazarene University. Do a lot of things on campus. I teach. I'm an adjunct there in the theology department. Aaron teaches in the history department, three classes a semester. He's adjuncting. And between the two of us, it's just kind of all college students all the time, except for my work with young pastors. So what's it like co-pastoring with Aaron? Talk, tell me a little bit about your relationship with him and how that works and, yeah. and maybe some of your roles and responsibilities that you have. Um, you know, Aaron and I were like two peas in a pod. I am the thinker and he's the activator. He jokes that I make the friends and he remembers their names, <laughs> but actually tons of people love Aaron too. We are just almost complete opposites in ways that are just ridiculously compatible and really our for all of our years in Europe we were co everything you know we were doing everything the same Um, we were working in the coffee shop and we were pastoring or we were ministering in whatever way and we were almost always together and people ask us all the time well how you know how do you spend you know 24 hours a day seven days a week with your significant other and I can't explain it. We just love it. We're crazy about, you know, working alongside each other in that way. And so co-pastoring is just super fun. As it comes to college students, we kind of divide up the labor, I guess, a little bit, maybe divide and conquer. And um, I do Wednesday nights and he does Sunday school. He takes the guys out to coffee and I take the girls out to coffee and I make the friends and he remembers their names. No, that's not true. (laughs) That's great. But (laughs) the two of us have a lot of overlap, right? Because we're both really involved at SNU, which is just a few miles away. Um, and we're both really involved in the church. And that kind of convergence has been super helpful just to meet as many students as possible and love on them and um, meet their needs and kind of bring them into the kingdom however we can. And the other thing that we've kind of ended up doing together is events, um, especially a series called With All Due Respect. Okay. So the church has started these discussion panels on controversial topics, and Aaron is the moderator, and he's fabulous. And I do kind of a lot of the the behind-the-scenes work, so a lot of the prep work and marketing a little bit, planning quite a bit, create the programs and, you know, um, make sure everything's 
all good to go. Actually, I get the text messages so people can text in a question for the panel. And I get those questions and kind of curate and edit and forward the best ones on to Aaron um, during the actual like live panel, which is super fun. Um, <laughs> but also really intimidating when your phone's blowing up with 20 or 30 messages at a time. Give us some examples of what topics you might um, have at these discussion panels. Oh, man, we've covered so much interfaith cooperation, hospitality and the LGBT community, racial reconciliation, science and faith. And actually, this year, we've gotten a grant to do, with all due respect type panels, on a larger scale. And the grant specifically asks us to choose topics where science and faith interact. Um, so we bring in a scientist and a theologian and a pastor, and we put them up on a panel. And it's very similar text-in, live text-in kind, kind of questions. The project is called the Two Windows Project. And so the Two Windows Project hosted a panel on creation and origins. And it was super fun. People had the greatest questions about dinosaurs and aliens and the Big Bang. And, you know, everybody's got all these curious minds in the audience, which was great. I think we had upwards of 250 people in attendance, which is so great. And it's just really exciting stuff to kind of host a public forum and say, we can talk about these ideas in Christian ways and disagree well and talk about um, the ways that we do agree and maybe even surprisingly do agree. And one of the things that I think it's kind of sparked for me is a rediscovery of my love for peacemaking mm. and unity building and collaboration building. Um, for example, I took the Strengths Finder for the first time about 10 years ago. And I cried for days. My strengths, in my mind, were just the most lame, unusable strengths. I wanted to be an activist and a world changer. And I had strengths like empathy, connectedness. You know, it, I, I saw my strengths finder list with ideation there as number five. And I was like, I have one good strength, and it's number five. <laughs> and <laughs> it was just aghast at, you know, at the deficiencies I thought in myself and my personality. So a year ago, or maybe even two years ago now, I took it again, and it was exactly the same. And I cried all over again <laughs> and hated my life for about 48 hours and just thought, you know, what am I even going to do with myself? And it doesn't help when my incredible husband, you know, has such, in my mind, strong strengths, right? In quotes, strong strengths. Like, you know, activation and competition and belief and input. And, you know, he's like this. He's a go-getter. And that's that's who he is. And it's, it's beautiful. But what really kind of clicked for me was doing these collaborative events where we're kind of making peace between two sides. But then also a few months ago, I took the Enneagram. And I'm an Enneagram 9, which is the peacemaker. And I took the Enneagram and was just depressed for a couple of days. You can see a lot of um, self-confidence issues here. But um, <laughs> that's what this is for. I just thought, I thought, what a terrible personality that my whole self is built on conflict avoidance. And that's that's how I saw it. I huh. I thought, you know, that's not even a personality. That's a, you know, in the fight or flight, I'm a, I'm a fleer. You know, I'm just this person that runs away anytime things, you know, get crazy. 
Um, and then I listened to the Liturgist podcast a couple weeks later on the Enneagram. And I think what the episode kind of helped me to realize once they started talking about um, the strengths of a, of a peacemaker, it was less about conflict avoidance and more about peacemaking, active mm-hmm. peacemaking activism. And this part, that was finally the part that clicked for me. I was like, yes, all the work I've been doing the last awesome. three years is about bringing people together who disagree, whether it's old and young clergy or people within the church and people outside the church and just trying to help people recognize that we're not so different after all. And so that's been a huge step on uh, in my journey since we've been back just in yeah. these last couple years. Okay, you've mentioned the Enneagram and the Two Windows Project. <laughs> we have to now talk about the Young Clergy Conference oh, yeah. because there's someone <laughs> specifically coming to that. Tell us about the Young Clergy Con, how people can sign up, where the vision came from, and who's coming to speak. Oh, man. Okay, so Young Clergy Con was is actually, oh, man, there's so much to this story. It was Lots born of out of so, so many things. So two years ago when we got back, it was you, Jason, who had a real heart for the young pastors on our district. Yeah. And people who have listened to the podcast have kind of heard that story, um, your passion for the young people in our district. And I really became kind of the um, activator for you in those moments to coordinate those events and curate some of what was happening and just get logistics in order to make make it run smoothly. And after pulling off uh, four or five of those gatherings, I thought, man, I, I can do this. I can put on an all-day event for 50 people with breakfast, coffee, lunch, speakers, and, and you know, it runs well. So why couldn't I do this for one or 200 people over the course of two or three days? When the grant came up for the Two Windows Project, they said, we're thinking about bringing in Richard Rohr. And I said, oh, my word, if you bring in Richard Rohr, we have to collaborate because I've been wanting to do this thing for young clergy to come together and meet each other and brainstorm and collaborate and um, envision the future and be inspired. And wouldn't I love to have Richard Rohr speaking at this event and so we were able to kind of tack on a couple of speaking engagements to his itinerary and um you know kind of craft this young clergy conference with him as the special guest which was just ridiculously exciting um but none of that would have happened without the two windows project um kind of fronting some of that um financial resources to be able to even dream about bringing somebody who's so well-known, right, yeah. and, and well-loved into our little Oklahoma City, you know, to be a part of a gathering of young pastors. I just think it's ridiculously cool. So when is it? So Young Clergy Conference is March 26th through 28th. I would love for it to be longer, but I've I've been told that nobody loves conferences as much as I do, so I should just keep it, you know, short and sweet for <laughs> the rest of you. And yeah, it's gonna it's gonna kick off kind of Sunday night with a two windows event, 
which is a panel discussion featuring um, Father Rohr. And then he will join us a couple times the next day to talk about a bunch of different things. And we're eating together and we're praying together and we're encouraging one another. Kind of those pillars that you've created with the gathering um, here on the, on the Oklahoma District as well. So, And This Nazarene Life is a sponsor. So if I want to sign up for the Young Clergy Con, where do I go? Yeah, you go to youngclergycon.com. Okay. Yeah, I, I have built a few websites this year too, which is <laughs> kind of weird. <laughs> You've got a lot of projects going on, uh-huh. um, one of them being this Nazarene life, right? Uh-huh. So I feel like it's time to kind of ask you some questions about this podcast. Yeah, I would love that. So what made you want to do this project? Oh, man. So at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, I really had this sense that something was coming. Um, and so I prayed for two full months probably, just, God, what is this next thing? I really feel like something is coming that you want me to make, that you want me to produce, essentially, and I don't know what it is. And I just had all this creative energy building up for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was like I was a runner on the starting line, and I was hunched down, and I could just feel that sense, that moment was coming when, you know, shot would go off, and I would just give everything I had to this thing. I just didn't know what it was. And so you and I talk a lot about the Church of the Nazarene and young pastors, especially as it pertains to the gatherings that we've been doing and really dreaming about what the future of that activism looks like. And I did some research with headquarters about delegates to General Assembly in 2013. And the statistic that I came away with that has just haunted me is that for the delegates we have demographic information for, 9% of General Assembly delegates in 2013 were under the age of 40. And when I think about that in the context of my young pastor friends leaving or my 30-something friends leaving the Church of the Nazarene, when I kind of put all of those things together, what clicked in my mind was if more young people had a voice at General Assembly, then maybe we would be a denomination that more young people would want to stay in. And so that really sparked something in me. I knew at that moment the project would, would have something to do with young pastors, but I still didn't know what it was. And I finally came to my wits end towards the end of May, just really overwhelmed and upset by this like sense of waiting. I'm not a very good waiter, I guess. (laughs) Um, And I said, Lord, if you don't give me this thing soon, I'm going to go crazy. I I need to know what you want me to do with the next couple of years of my life. And I sense that there is something there. I just don't know what it is. And within a week of that prayer, I had six new projects. And they were almost all related to young pastors. And the main one being this Nazarene Life podcast. And what sparked it was we were talking about the General Assembly delegates. And John said to you and I in this conversation, well, why don't you write a resolution? And you said something like, what what does that mean? I didn't even know you could write a resolution. And in that moment, I was just like, oh, my gosh. 
I have to make a podcast about this. People have to know that they can write a resolution. And I had kind of taken all of this for granted because as part of my master's thesis, I wrote a resolution concerning the deaconate of the Church of the Nazarene and, and the role of deacons in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, and I had spent six months on that project, you know, researching, looking through General Assembly journals, um, reading them like they were periodical magazines. I mean, I just ate it up. And I wrote at the end of that dissertation um, a resolution to General Assembly, not that I've submitted, but just that um, kind of culminated the research that I was doing. And so I knew that I could write a piece and I knew kind of the process of what it would take to get it to the floor, but you didn't. I didn't. And you had been in the Church of the Nazarene for so long. You'd been a pastor for 13 years. You're ordained. And I thought, if Jason Smith doesn't know that he can write a resolution and change things and be a part of, have a space at the table, have a voice in the room... Um, then uh, there must be a lot of us that don't know. And I just took it for granted that I knew because I had did so much research in my graduate degree. So I knew in that moment I had to create a podcast and it had to inform, educate, and inspire. And I wanted people to feel like they were not alone. There are young Nazarene clergy all over the world doing incredible things, that there are ways that we can participate in the process, that we can come to the table And I just started talking about this. I mean, it became my soapbox. I I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop expressing all of these things. And um, I remember I used to tell people, older clergy, um, you know, I said, I'll stop saying you guys can't change if you stop saying that we don't care. And really trying to help that older generation know that there are young pastors out there who do care. And I've had DSs ask me, well, how can I get more of my young clergy to come to district assembly? And my question is, have you asked them? And I think part of it is we just haven't collaborated. Maybe we just don't know that we can or should. And so my heartbeat really has been to get you know, experienced clergy and young clergy at a table to talk about how much more we have that unites us than divides us. And especially for young clergy to know that they are not alone. Because I feel like I hear a lot of people who feel like they're doing their ministry on an island. Mm -hmm. And so gatherings and meetups and a podcast, all of that has been centered around this goal of enlivening young clergy and helping them to know that they're not alone, that there are so many more of us out there, that we're all committed, we all care what happens, and um, that there is space at the table. In fact, the kind of slogan that I want to cultivate for young clergy conferences is that there is space at this table. And there is space for young clergy to have a voice and participate and nurture a denomination um, that they want to stick around for. And I find so much more passion in young clergy than people told me I would, right? And in fact, a DS um, once said to me, you know, I never nominate young clergy to be delegates to General Assembly because who would want to go to that? It's a long, boring week of meetings. And I looked him in the face and I said, um, or maybe I didn't exactly say this, but I wish that I had, right? I would have said something like, um, come on, it's it's a week-long 
paid vacation to an interesting city where all your friends are going to go and time to be in the room where it happens, right? We're Hamilton fans here. Yes. Who wouldn't sign up for that? I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. And I don't know any young clergy person. I have not met a young pastor yet who has said, yeah, if given the chance to go on a free trip to Indianapolis for a week to General Assembly, I wouldn't take that. Who would do that? No, we're not saying that. Maybe we're saying, well, it would be hard to get away from my church for a week, or I'm holding down the fort for my senior pastor who's going to General Assembly. But we're not saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to be a part. We care. We care so much. And that's part of why the last question I ask everybody is, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? Because I feel like we are inspired to stay in the Church of the Nazarene. We are desiring to be here for the long haul, especially the ones who are still here, right? Right. I think if you've been in the Church of the Nazarene as a young pastor for the last 10 years, you're probably not going anywhere. You've made over and over that decision to stay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in spite of great odds, right? And people who don't necessarily believe in you. And so you, for us, right? These 30-somethings who are still clergy in the Church of the Nazarene, um, we are committed. Those of us who are left want to be here for the long haul. And um, I had someone actually laugh in my face when I talked about being still here because they're like, you're 32. What do you know about being still here? You haven't been here very long. I think there's this disconnect. People don't understand what our young clergy are going through and how much of them it has taken to stay this long and to stay hopeful and be a part And some more than others, right? Some people have had incredible experiences, and it's easy for them to say, of course I'm not going anywhere. But there are a lot of people, a lot of my clergy friends, who feel like it's been a conscious decision over and over and over. And they really have stayed in the Church of the Nazarene, even though they're only, you know, in their 30s. This is awesome. No, this is great. I think this will be really good for listeners, too, like Mm. to know your passion and why you're doing it. What have you learned about yourself as you've done these interviews? Oh man. So okay, so I can kind of I can kind of explain that by finishing the story of the of the podcast because yeah. I had this idea. And like I said, I I was like on the starting line. I was ready to go geared up. And as soon as the ideas started flowing, I was I was out. I was out of the gate. And within 3 weeks of deciding I would create a podcast, I had recorded five episodes, built a website, and released my first episode. I am not necessarily that, you know, crazy, get things done, productive, go-getter person. And suddenly here I am within three weeks of this idea. It was a real thing. I just decided I could do it and I would do it. And then I did it. And it was just like, I think I blew my own mind a little bit those first few weeks because I was just like, who is this person um, that is so passionate? I went to England. We'd already planned a kind of work and witness trip there, just Aaron and I. And so we were there for two weeks. I did five interviews there, some of which I had to re-record. And then um, I went to PalCon, where I was significantly better at doing interviews um, in Kansas City. Um, And then I went to Toronto and North Carolina and had all these great experiences and was able to interview people all along the way. 
And so the large part, a vast majority of the interviews, I think all but three, have been in person, um, face-to-face, which is just super fun for me to be able to meet all these incredible people in person. You know, I only knew about half the people um, before starting an interview. And some of my best interviews were with complete strangers that I just see where the conversation goes and try to follow it. Um, I've become a much better listener and a much better interviewer because I think those are two different things. I've learned a lot about storytelling, kind of being able to start from the beginning. I really wanted season one to have a very distinct vibe and rhythm. I wanted people to tune in and know exactly what to expect, not in a mundane sort of way, but to fulfill those expectations episode by episode that they would have certain similarities, that I would start with the same first two questions. I would end with the last question. I would have an intro. Oh, man, Brandon Whiteside. I came home from this trip to England And I was getting ready to release within, I think, a week or a week and a half, my first episode. And I said, Brandon Whiteside, I need an intro to this podcast. I think it's going to be called This Nazarene Life. And it's going to be about Nazarene pastors. And he said, oh, man, it has to be holiness unto the Lord. And he had already planned a trip to Nashville to see some of his best friends and said that he would have really enjoyed working on a project together with them while he was there. And it just so happens that it was perfect timing for him to kind of start on that project with them. And he came back from this weekend in Nashville with an intro, and we released the next Monday. And I think I learned so much about my follow-through because the tagline is kind of like new episodes most Mondays. And I thought at the beginning that I would skip an, skip a Monday every three or four weeks, but actually only skip two. And I think it's because I'm just so passionate about these stories. And I do an interview and it's just amazing. And I've learned so much and I can't wait for everybody to hear it. The hardest week of the whole podcast was the week between the first two episodes because episode zero was kind of this like, hey, welcome to the podcast. Here's what we're hoping for. And... I had all these stories piling up in my arsenal and I was just, oh, that's a terrible um, analogy, but I was just (laughs) so ready for the world to meet these people because I just had the privilege of sitting in some sacred spaces with some incredible people. And I just, I just like itching to, I almost released episode one three days early because I, (laughs) I got to, uh, I got to Friday and I I almost couldn't contain it. I, I almost, you know, upload and hit send and all this kind of thing. But I didn't know anything about web design. I didn't know anything about podcasting. I've always been passionate about audio. I did a semester abroad when I was at SNU and I took an audio recorder, cassette recorder, and I recorded everyone. I mean, I came back with little snippets of everyone I had met on that cassette and I listened to it until the cassette broke over and over and over. I've always been passionate about sound. I'm an audio listener, um, you know, ever since my childhood, like I've always listened. I'm not into music. It's only, you know, that kind of voice storytelling verbal sounds but I've I've had a knack and a passion for those things my whole life it was it was crazy it was like everything in my journey had prepared me for the end of last May 
when all of this would just fall into my lap. And it was like, I didn't even have to put the pieces together because I, I already was them. And it just flowed from myself. Um, and I just felt the whole time like I was doing exactly what I was being called to do. And I think the passion of that has really driven me to stay up late at night creating Young Clergy Conference website or last night <laughs> staying up till 2 a.m. just because I really wanted to put the Nazarene Life totes <laughs> on the website um, and <laughs> trying to figure that out. The, the podcast is me, you know, and I um, really feel called to do at least four seasons and just kind of see at the end of that where it goes. I'm really hoping to launch season two, not necessarily as a podcast, but as a group of resources, one of which is a podcast. So kind of expand a little bit and talk about how Young Clergy Conference kind of fits into the mission of this Nazarene life, but everything to do with young pastors and connecting young pastors. And so I'm going to take six weeks off and interview hopefully many, many people in those six weeks, either in person or over Skype, and come back at the end of January just ready to roll with a whole other season of exciting things happening. Ah, that's great, Brett. Now, um, how long does it take you to edit one of these podcasts? Whether it's like, we think we averaged early on, some of them were like only 20, 30 minutes. Right. Now they're more right, right around an hour. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to edit that? Yeah, so I try to record people for an hour and 15 minutes now. And I didn't at the beginning. I really, uh, I haven't released them in order that I recorded them um, because I kind of recorded them in chunks on different trips. And so I've mixed up the order of release, but you can always tell which is one of those first five or six because it's less than 30 minutes long. And I've really come into a groove of, recording for an hour and 15 minutes, really sitting down with the person, having a few minutes off the mic, you know, just to talk with them for a few minutes and maybe even do that at the end, but then have that, you know, hour, hour and 20 minute recording. Um, and hopefully it being a really accurate, um, polished representation of that person. So I record the episode and then it probably from beginning of editing to, you know, finish uploading and hit send to the website, probably an average of four hours. So the shorter ones have taken less time and the longer ones have taken more time. Somehow just want so badly to get it right. I remember one specific episode, I finished it at midnight and I just thought it's not ready. And I listened to the whole thing. And then at one, Um, spent 30 minutes doing some massive overhaul rearranging of the sound and um, a couple of the questions and ending it a little early because the last couple of minutes felt like a little fluffy. Um, And then, you know, releasing at like, I think 2 a.m. that time. But somehow that drive has kept me going. You know, Richard Rohr says that vocation is that thing that you do that nobody has to pay you for that you just love it and you just do it. And for me, all of this young clergy activism has absolutely been that. I don't get paid. It's not um, lucrative or makes that much financial sense, but it makes me feel alive and it gives me hope for a body of believers that I love to move forward into the future in ways that are healthy. 
That's awesome. I'm going to be a little bit selfish and ask <laughs> if somebody wants to support that, if someone wants to be someone who would want to support the pod, how can they contact you? And where would they go to say, man, I love this. I believe in the project. I believe in what you're doing for young clergy. Can I sponsor a pod to put a little money in your pocket? Yeah, uh, that would be great. You know, I have so many big dreams for this Nazarene life. And I'm kind of collecting right now a team of brainstormers to help me move into season two um, with a wider platform. Yeah, if you if they want to partner in that work, um, they can reach me at thisnazlife at gmail.com. And I'm always looking for nominations of inspiring young clergy who are passionate about the Church of the Nazarene and the work that they're doing and the kingdom. And they can send those nominations to me via email. Or you can go to our website, thisnazlife.com. And there's a donate button right there on the front page. And you can participate um, financially by, by giving. So... Yeah, lots of exciting ways to, to be involved. And Young Clergy Conference is looking for volunteers and, and tons of ways that people can get involved. If you feel like this is something you want to be a part of and you're just not sure how, you can just send, shoot me an email and we'll figure out something because there's a lot of work to do. That's great. Now, how have you in the past selected the 23 guests that you've had? So, uh, like I said, about half of them have been people that I, I've known um, and the other half have really been people that I've just kind of run into. Still, my favorite episode is Deanna's. And I met her in passing on the campus of Mid-America Nazarene University for Palcon there over the summer. And I just said, you're great. Can I interview you for my podcast? And we had literally spoken two minutes total ever. Her story is just so incredible and her passion and her heart are so beautiful. I think really I just happened to cross paths with a lot of really great people. And then kind of magically about week eight or nine of the podcast, people started sending me nominations. Finally started saying, well, how do I send in a name of somebody I know? And so I created this as life at gmail.com, which I spent the first half of the podcast not having and kind of created a spreadsheet of who'd been nominated. Where are they from? Are they USA? Are they international or are they experienced? So I kind of have those three categories like role model interviews and young clergy um, here and abroad. That's been filling up. I think I have like 30 nominations now. Oh, goodness. Um, and I'm kind of always looking for more, especially women especially people in unusual contexts. Mm -hmm. I hope for diversity. I don't know that I've achieved it, and that's probably one of the biggest criticisms that people could level at the podcast if they wanted to, that um, it's actually not that diverse. So that's kind of my goal for season two is to nurture more diversity and move forward. I have a lot of dreams. I'm very excited about it. No, that's great. I want to plug Deanna's episode. It's episode three. I know. Deanna yeah. Hayden. And so if you want to go check that out, I'm glad you played your hand and, it, and said which one your favorite one was. Yeah. I remember when you came home mm. and you'd had the interview and you said, "You, I got to talk to you about this. Yeah. Um, I feel like you've had a lot of praise, but also had a lot of criticism. You mm. just mentioned criticism that someone could level at the pod. Mm. How? What have you learned about yourself, the podcast, the Church of the Nazarene in the midst of the praise, but also in the midst of the criticism. Oh, man. I think one of the things that I've learned about myself 
which is not necessarily about myself, right? It's about humanity in general, is that when you take a big risk and do something that feels big, the day after, the self-doubt is just overwhelming. I remember launching, um, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, it was just a few weeks ago, youngclergycon.com. And the next morning just woke up with this sinking feeling of, what am I doing? People are going to come to this thing and it's going to be terrible. Or they're not going to come to this thing and it's going to be amazing. Either way, I'm totally screwed. And I just had this um, just overwhelming sense of like, who do you think you are? You cannot do this. This is not possible. Who are you to think that you could create a gathering for people that lasts three days and just so many feelings, so many feelings, all the feelings, and just really doubting everything. But holding to that call because I I have only ever done this year what I've what I have felt like I'm called to do. And so that's just what I kind of keep coming back to. Like, well, if this is the thing that God wants me to do, then God is going to make it okay. And I have to just cling to that kind of, you know, safety net and say, all right, God, this is all you because I'm doing this thing and I've never done anything like this. I don't even know if I'm capable, but I know that if you show up, it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be an offering to you and to your kingdom and I need you and just kind of cling to to God in those moments. Um, I'm a very weakly spiritual person. And we could talk about that for a long time because I am pretty passionate about it. But um, if you go to drurywriting.com, Drury, I think David Drury, um, created what he calls rhythms, spiritual rhythms. Um, and there's kind of daily people who get the most out of little snippets every day of Bible reading or prayer and kind of weekly people who don't feel like that fills them up at all. They're actually looking for something um, bigger and longer, um, but not as often because that would take over your life, right? And maybe that's not such a bad thing, but for me, it would be a bad thing. Um, So I spend three hours a week in prayer. And the irony of that is that um, that day is normally on Mondays. So I release an episode essentially Sunday night and wake up Monday morning in this horrible depth of, oh my goodness, what am I thinking? You know, what am I doing? Who do you think you are? And then I go into my, you know, three hours of quiet and prayer and meditation and writing and scripture reading and get filled up all over again and reminded that, you know, I'm just doing what I'm called to do Mm -hmm. and this is a part of um, the journey and that's okay. So I have just really learned to kind of cling to my walk and my journey um, and my call. Wow, that's great. Keep going. Tell us more about your life and God. I would love to hear more about, you always have that notebook. I mean, uh-huh. I've never seen you without a notebook. I've known you since you were 15, probably. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen you without something by your side that mm. you're pouring your heart into. Mm. I'd love to know more about like how you rest in God, who you are in God, what God communicates to you in prayer? Mm-hmm. Well, I have always carried the notebooks because I have a terrible memory and actually can't remember anything. Aaron and I joke that I don't remember a movie until we've seen it two or three times 
because I just, I have a genuinely terrible memory, but actually most of my notebooks I have never read. I think just the act of writing solidifies something um, a little more for me in my memory um, than just living the thing because my memory in and of itself is terrible. But if I have that kind of repetition of writing it down, you know, I keep all these things for years. Who knows why? I, I have notebooks going back to, I don't know, probably middle school or high school, but I don't, I don't read them. And I rarely ever read them. In fact, when I sit down to read them, I get so emotionally involved in what's happening in the writings. And I think I've got to stop this. I, I, I can't, I can't go back there. I have to live my life now and where God is calling me to now. So I think it's actually more of a, that kind of work of remembering what God is doing in my life. And I know that if I don't record the audio or write it down, I won't, I won't remember those things. Really, I would say five or six years ago, I went to a workshop in Turkey where a woman was explaining um, spiritual rhythms to the class and was kind of saying, here's what it looks like if you're a daily person. And, and my husband, Aaron, he's very much a daily person. You know, he sits down with his Bible and his green book of prayer every day and spends 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes reading and praying and, and writing a couple things down. And that fills him up. Um, and for me, after 30 minutes, I haven't even gotten started. And I would do that thing every day and just feel so unfed um, and still waiting on whatever it is that I was supposed to be learning during those times. And so what I've learned to do and what has been the most effective method for myself is to find once or twice a week a chunk of two to three hours. And the first half of that is free writing with a journal on the right and a to-do list on the left and a calendar. Right now I have actually a notebook that has a calendar on the left and a to-do list on the right for each week. So as I think of things, so I free write, I, st I usually start with um, dear God, or if it's a really tough week, I start, oh dear God. <laughs> and then from there, I just write anything and everything that comes to mind, nothing too big or too small, too dumb, or too shallow. And as I'm doing that, things will come to mind. Oh, I need to call so-and-so for coffee. Oh, I need to text such and such about this. And I have all my technology is off so that I'm forced to write down text Aaron about groceries in my to-do list. So I kind of um, get it all out. And, it, and that takes at least an hour to just really talk to God and let the distractions um, find their way onto a separate piece of paper. And so then after that hour, I'm ready to read. And so I get out my Bible and my usually green book, which is a guide to prayer for all who seek God. And I turn to this week in the green book and I read a couple of the scriptures and I read a couple of the kind of stories there at the end. And then I free write some more about what God might be telling me through these passages and write down anything that I might want to research further or dig into a little bit, maybe something that I, I am wrestling with or I don't understand, um, and spend that second hour, hour and a half kind of in um, a, a kind of cooperative prayer time where I'm trying to write and listen as much as I'm speaking. I find that if I write several pages, after a while something comes out that I wasn't expecting or that I didn't see coming. And for me, that's God speaking. And so I kind of have learned to listen to that 
voice that's there when all the distractions have faded away. What's left is me and God um, talking about scripture. So. You and God talking about scripture. Like, what does God mean to you, Britt? Oof, wow, what a big question. Um, I feel everything is connected and I see God in it all and God at work and the kingdom coming. I think God is all around us and participating with us. Um, St. Ignatius of Loyola says that God is the God who labors alongside us. And so I find that um, I am working for the kingdom, but I look over and there's God working um, alongside me and ahead of me and behind me and before me. And, you know, it's very Wesleyan, right? All these things of prevenient grace and the sanctification that God is doing even in my own life, healing my deep wounds. Um, You know, Nadia Boltzweber talks a lot about how um, she tries to preach from her scars and not from her wounds. And if I don't spend time opening my deep wounds in prayer to God and letting him heal those things in my life, those deep things in my life, I'm not able to do that. I'm not able to preach from a scarred place of healed wholeness. I'm only brokenness and wounds. And so I think for me, God is the God at work and connected, and God is the God who heals and meets me where I'm at and loves me for who I am. I think coming to OKC first in 2001, I had a really black and white faith. I had um, an understanding that things were right or wrong, black and white, and I was offended by the wrong things and I was um, moved by the right things. And I lived, you know, that first whatever, 17 years of my life with that kind of theology and it gave me a huge cloud of guilt a a large burden of shame, and even maybe a self-loathing now that I think about it. And I came to OKC first, and at the time, John was the youth pastor. And so for two years, my last two years of high school, he was my youth pastor. And he was able to say to me, Brittany, there are things more important than purity and being right. And I remember just laughing in his face and saying, like what? (laughs) Because I thought that's what it was to go to heaven, right? To be pure and to be right. And he said, like love, like relationships. And that was my turning point there. You know, at 17 years of age, I think I found a faith in a God whose grace loved me for who I was. And, you know, I didn't need to be, you know, like metaphorically dressed up to go to church. I could come broken to God, um, to a place that was a hospital for sinners rather than a museum for saints, as John likes to say. And so I think God is the God who has walked alongside me, labored alongside me, and and really, truly has healed me and taken me on a journey um, closer to his heart, the heart of God. Oh, it's awesome. Thank you. Can I ask another big question? Yeah. What does the church mean to you? Oh, This is such a big question, and I think about it all the time because there's the church of the Nazarene church, but there's the kind of like ethereal, bigger church, big C church, which I think is actually just a metaphor for the kingdom on earth. And finding the points of overlap for me is such a joy. 
And I'm always looking for those spaces when we, OKC First, or we, the Church of the Nazarene, are most ourselves, you know, are the thing that we are at our core, which is the kingdom coming. So I think the church for me, in a, in a larger sense, is that thing happening, right? The foretaste of glory divine, the coming of the kingdom for all creatures, all of creation. I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I'm passionate about the environment. You know, I live in a tiny house mostly because it saves me money and because it saves the environment. And I love animals and I have chickens and we could talk about so many different things, but I just feel like um, the kingdom is on its way and I see it in so many different places. And to watch the Church of the Nazarene be a part of that movement of God in the world is something so special. And it's something that I feel like comes out in every interview that I've had is kind of that movement of God and the kingdom coming within their con- within that person's ministerial context, which I love so much. Man, it seems like it's a good opportunity now to ask the question that you end every pod with, which is, what gives you hope? Or why are you staying in the Church of the Nazarene? Mm. I think I feel like finding a Wesleyan theology in some sense saved me all over again. To come to OKC first and to hear about provenient grace and a God that loved me for who I was and not the God with a yardstick who said I didn't measure up um, really changed everything for me. That thoroughly Wesleyan understanding really changed everything and not that it changed everything all at once I think it's something that I'm still growing into for example in um in 2013 my husband and I separately but together went on a silent retreat um at a monastery in Wales when we were living in England and it was 48 hours of complete silence um and I got there And I just thought, what am I doing, right? It was one of those self-doubt, overwhelming moments. And I walked in the next morning to my spiritual director, which is the only time you can speak, right? The whole 48 hours, you have 30 minutes each day with a spiritual guide. And she said, well, you know what I think you need to do? I think you need to just go down to the hall to one of the prayer rooms, and it doesn't matter which one, and just listen for a couple of hours for God to talk to you. And I thought, I do not want you to do that. Because I know what God is going to say. God is going to say that all the things that I say to myself, I don't measure up. I'm not enough. I could do, be doing more. Who do I think I am? And I was very scared, terrified even, I think. And I walked down the hall and I sat in silence with a Bible and a notebook. And it took about 30 minutes, but... All of a sudden, it was like God was saying, it's not like that at all. I love you. I'm crazy about you. I think you're great. I love you for who you are. I'm not keeping score. And I feel like um, in those moments over and over again, I am re-reminded what it means to be Wesleyan, to be loved unconditionally by a God that goes before me and has my best interests in mind um, and doesn't want me to live a life of guilt and scorekeeping, but rather this kind of passionate 
life of following and following my call. And I think I stay in the Church of the Nazarene because I have always been here and I feel so richly connected. You know, I've been to so many countries around the world and met Nazarenes all over. General Assembly is like a family reunion. And what better way to follow God than with a group of people who want to hold hands and go the same direction? Mm -hmm. And so that's what the Church of the Nazarene is for me. It's a family of people who are headed the same places, right? On the same trajectory um, to broken places, to bring the kingdom, to be who God is calling them to be, to draw near to God in a way that shapes and forms them through sanctification. And I love what Deirdre said in her interview that she believes we are called to fidelity to a family of believers. And they are all going to have flaws and they're all going to have issues and they're all going to have family feuds over this or that or the other. So why wouldn't you stay where you're planted and um, be a part of the future of something that you know and that you already love? So I think I think so many reasons, but those are the two big ones, the, the being Wesleyan and um, the being a part of a family that is – um, going the same places I'm trying to go. Hey, thanks, Britt. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on the pod. <laughs> thanks for having me on the pod. <laughs> hey, if someone wants to get a hold of you, um, what's the best way? My email is revbrittbullerjack at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook, Britt Bullerjack. I'm on Instagram. Um, actually, Eleanor, the Airstream is on Instagram. Eleanor is the name of our um, Airstream that we live in. And that's um, Eleanor, the Airstream. That's on Instagram. And um, any of my websites, you know, thisneslife.com, youngclergycon.com. You can find me all sorts of places. I'm out there. Cool. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Can I ask you a bonus question, like almost extra credit? Sure. So you mentioned that you and Aaron were two peas in a pod. So can you tell us about that pod? Because (laughs) I think that Eleanor the Airstream is a big part of your life. So I would love to have you tell us a little bit about who Eleanor is and what she means to you guys. Yeah, so um, my husband and I, we have always been interested in kind of this big picture of recreation that God is doing in the kingdom coming on earth. And as participants in that movement, we've looked for ways to either live with several people in a, in a smaller home or live in a tiny home for ourselves so that we're using as few resource, resources as possible. Um, and maybe living in community at the same time. We ended up being actually crazy about tiny houses. We, we owned all the seasons of all the shows back in the day before they were, when, when there was only one, we owned it on iTunes. Um, and then we got back to the U.S. and we thought, oh, we're not actually doing that. We're just going to, you know, keep watching our shows and like dreaming about what it would look like to live faithfully to this vision of the kingdom. And finally, one day, Aaron saw this blog post about an Airstream that these people had completely redone on the inside and it looked like a home. I mean, if you didn't, if you hadn't seen the outside, you might have thought it was just a a cute little house with rounded corners that they lived in, you know, full time or whatever. Um, And he said, doesn't this look like us? And I thought, oh, it, it does, but 
okay, fine, then, you know, it's cute. And then a few hours later, he sent me a Craigslist link to an Airstream. And I thought, now, wait a minute. Are we talking about this or are we talking about this? <laughs> so I kind of messaged him back and I was like, what are you doing here? Why are you sending me Craigslist links? And um, so we talked about it for a while. We actually went and saw one, right? We drove 45 minutes away and saw this Airstream. It's completely dilapidated, in terrible shape. Like we could have never finished it. It had too much work that it needed to be done. And so then we drove to Kansas three days later and looked at one in Kansas, which was super nice, but way over our budget. And finally, we um, both took a day off. We found this one on Craigslist in Little Rock. And the guy said, if you, if you can get here by 4 o'clock, um, you, it'll be, you'll be first in line because the next person's not coming till 4.30. So we get in the car. We're on our way to Little Rock. And I thought, this is crazy. Who does this? You know, it just it seemed so wild to me. And we got on the phone with uh, a friend of ours who owns a bunch of property in Oklahoma City. And we said, listen, we're doing this crazy thing. Do you have like a vacant lot? We can just park this thing on for several months while we work on it. And he was like, you're not going to believe this, but you're the second person in two weeks to ask me that. And I've spent this whole two weeks thinking about it. And I think my answer is yes. And if you, you know, go through with it because these other people didn't, you can park your Airstream on my property while you fix it up. And that was on the way to Little Rock. And um, I knew in that moment that we could go for it because we had this place to put it and like it would work out really well. And actually, I couldn't imagine it working out any better. Um, but it's a great story. It's We got there and the guy said, oh, I don't take checks even if you've got a down payment because we'd taken some cash, but not the whole thing because we didn't know if we were actually going to buy it. And we decided we wanted it. We had to drive 30 minutes to the nearest ATM because he lived in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. And, you know, drove back to the guy and he said, all right, now if you don't get this off my property in 14 days, I'm just going to sell it to somebody else. And we had no plan for taking it back with us because we'd driven in a car and we weren't sure if we were going to buy it anyway. So it all worked out. We actually had a friend in Little Rock who was going on a road trip to Oklahoma City and had a huge Suburban and just towed it for us for literally the cost of the gas, which at the time was super cheap. And we spent 11 months, you know, slowly as we had time and money um, fixing it up, working an average of 18 hours a week for a whole year, 2015 basically. Um, and now it's home. It's not quite done. There's a few things here and there I'd really like to do, but it's adorable. And our goal is to live in it two years just to say that we tried, just to see how sustainable it is for us. Cause it is tiny, it is tiny. We have a huge backyard, we're on a double lot. We've got chickens and a dog and um, a lot of fun things happening outdoors. So that's helpful. Um, and we just built a deck, which I love so much. Watch my chickens while I'm sitting on the deck drinking coffee. But yeah, it's it's an experiment. It's an experiment in sustainability and living within our means. Um, and it's fun and it's exciting. I don't know how long we'll do it, but it's it's fun while it lasts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> People can follow that journey and look historically back at Eleanor the Airstream on Instagram. Yeah. Um, you've got one particular follower that uh, <laughs> surprised you at one point. Yeah. Tell us about that and that interaction, oh, if you want to. Very early in the process, when you know we were a month into the renovations and people said, oh my gosh, you cannot 
not document what you're doing. You have to get an Instagram. And I hadn't even downloaded Instagram. I wasn't sure how it worked. And um, I finally gave in. I created this Instagram. And I spent the first week, you know, uploading older photos so they could kind of see the progression. And then um, within a month of, a month or two of starting, um, Rob Bell followed us on Instagram. And it was hilarious because I just happened to notice that one of the new followers that popped up one day was Rob Bell. And I went to Rob Bell's page and he only followed at the time like 39, you know, people. And so I just felt so excited and privileged that this like famous person had noticed my Instagram account, you know, blah, 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 like you do. And about a, a year later, right after the renovation was almost completely done. And we went to a book signing and we waited in line, you know, got our book signed. And I, and I, towards the end, I said, Rob, you follow us on Instagram. And he said, oh my God, you're Eleanor the Airstream. And I said, yes, we are. And he said, I should be taking my picture with you right now. What you guys have done with that thing is just incredible. And so, you know, we had maybe a one minute interaction, but that is my claim to fame, you're right? <laughs> Nothing cooler has ever happened or maybe will ever happen to me in my entire life. <laughs> Thanks, Britt.